Hello and welcome listeners to another very special episode of The Right Stuff. This is the exclusive content podcast where we talk about all things Edgar Wright, aka the podcast known as, oh shoot, we didn't come up with a name for this. Do you remember that fun title? Way back in the day in the first episode, yeah. Way back in the day. Uh, today, I am your host. My name is Bernadette Gorman-White, and today I'm joined by... A lethargic Mike Burge. Ah, lethargic Mike Burge. We'll get mm-hmm. to know you very well, I'm sure. Maybe we'll wake mm. you up with this podcast. That's usually what happens. I'm drinking a coffee. I'm about to talk debt right stuff with one of my favorite people this is if it's gonna if anything's gonna wake me up it's gonna be this bullshit right (laughs) (laughs) well here's to hoping uh Mm -hmm. so listeners if you are here already listening that means you are a member of our exclusive content feed so i want to thank you already for your $5 monthly contribution to get all this extra cool exclusive content so if you're here you already know the website You're already familiar with all of the great stuff that we have to offer there, but I will remind you that if you are in the Beacon area, to please check out the Story Screen Drive-In in in Beacon, New York. Uh, Make sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We're always posting the new information for the movies coming up on upcoming weekends, so just make sure to stay tuned to that. But for now, we are here to talk about the 2015 film Ant-Man which was supposed to be directed by Edgar Wright, written by Edgar Wright, and story by by Edgar Wright. But we'll get into the nitty gritty of why he got the story by credit and why he got the written by credit and why he ended up leaving the film. So, Burge, were you tracking back in 2006, I want to say, when it was announced that Edgar Wright was going to be making Ant-Man? Were you tracking all of that as it was happening? Uh, fairly. I mean, it wasn't really that big of a deal back then. It's kind of like one of those, uh, stories that, uh, the entire actual tale becomes so much more important, more towards the end, like the deeper you get into it. Back in like, I mean, even around Shaun of the Dead time, uh, there was like rumblings that the dude that made Spaced was talking, uh, you know, with, um the Marvel dudes to like make an Ant-Man movie, which is like around the same time that like the, the artisan deal and stuff like that was going on with uh Marvel where they were like the Punisher and like weird stuff like that. And Ant-Man was like a possibility. Uh, so it was like, Oh, the space and Shaun of the dead guy might make an Ant-Man movie. And then like still two years before, like even Iron Man or incredible Hulk came out. Like it was like, an Ant-Man movie, maybe. Like, Marvel movies just weren't really that big of a deal. And then I feel like after, you know, those first two initial movies dropped, it started becoming, like, an actual thing. So I was always clocking that the dude that made, like, Shaun of the Dead and Spaced and Hot Fuzz um, was developing something. But you never know if those things are going to go anywhere. Sure. Yeah, I definitely wasn't tracking that back in the day. I was aware, obviously, of Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, and then inevitably Scott Pilgrim, but I wasn't really following the MCU very heavily at the time. But surprisingly, I was actually watching more MCU films during that era than more the recent era that we're dealing with now. So to me... Finding out that Edgar Wright had an interest in, like, the early 2000s just to do an Ant-Man movie without even the knowledge of the MCU happening is kind of sad to me that we didn't get that film. Because it seemed to be a passion project for him. And then just the way the events unfolded, the MCU kind of built up around his idea of what he wanted to do. And he kind of of got, like, shoehorned into having to make it a certain way, and then obviously it fell apart because of the differences in creativity and content and ideas. But I do like the Ant-Man movie that we got. But oh, yeah. It's enjoyable. It's very enjoyable. But I would have loved to have lived in that other universe with that Wright version. 
Yeah, there's, uh, I think, one of the most interesting things that's going on with everything involved in, like, the Edgar Wright and Joe Cornish script and, like, the the overdevelopment of it and then the finished product that we got. One of the interesting things is that there's positives and negatives to both as far as my opinion lands, where I'm kind of happy with the outcome that we got, like you said. Uh, I would have liked to have seen what the Edgar Wright version might have been, but I am also very much in the camp of, um, you know, I think that James Gunn and Taika Waititi were able to do the auteur director thing while also play within the wheel box. And we saw that, you know, we're going to see with Thor Love and Thunder and we saw with Guardians Volume 2 that if you play by the rules and you play nice the first time, you get you get more wiggle room to do a lot more fun stuff. And to be quite honest, it just kind of seems to me that Edgar Wright didn't want to do that, not because he's like a dick or was like wanted to be in total control. I just think it's something that he didn't sign up for in any way whatsoever. James Gunn and Taika Waititi came into uh, making an MCU movie in phase two and phase three when everybody already knew about this connective tissue Maybe they didn't know how intense it would be, but they were able to, like, figure it out. Joss Whedon's the exact same thing with Edgar Wright, where only Joss Whedon accidentally created this connective tissue that ended up destroying his love for making pretty much movies altogether. Um, And uh, I think that Edgar Wright, like, again, he signed up in the early aughts, started developing stuff, like, legitimately in 2006. And Mm -hmm. by the time... He got done with like five drafts because they just have they kept having to like it's an independent movie. All right, it's an independent movie, but can you change it a bit? All right, now it's going to be part of phase one in this MCU. All right, now it's part of phase two. Now it's part of phase three. All right, no, actually, it's the <laughs> end of phase two. All right, actually, we're going to have somebody else take a pass at this, and then they just completely rewrite it. And he's just like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like that's kind of what it just kind of comes down to, where he didn't want to overconnect stuff he wanted to make it a little bit more independent and that's not what these movies are i don't know if i would want a marvel movie that is solely independent at this point even even guardians of the galaxy which is probably the best example has very tiny little connections that allow you to be able to connect it to everything else in the grander story but the movie is still it slaps like raiders of the lost ark like it's it's its own movie that just has these very tiny little throwbacks, which I think is very comic booky. Mm-hmm. So, and and it works very well for that movie. Those two movies, the two Guardians movies, are my favorite MCU movies. And I have a feeling that a Edgar Wright Ant Man movie with Paul Rudd would have been one of my other favorite ones too. But I definitely wouldn't have wanted the, um, the 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 discomfort of it kind of just like not being any part of anything whatsoever. I think that Edgar Wright would have been able to pull that off, but it just seems to me like he wasn't really interested in trying to meet in the middle because that's not the type of filmmaker that he is. Right. I know Evangeline Lilly, who plays Hope in the Ant-Man franchise and now the MCU, um, I know that she had said, no matter how good of a film that Edgar Wright version would have been, it would have stuck out like a sore thumb in the grand context of things. And yeah, no no one wants that. I mean, I think even Edgar Wright, clearly that's why he left. Like, there's just- I think it was a responsible decision on everybody's part. Kevin Feige even had a really good talk about it where he was just like, it's just, uh, you know, it's better to stop it now than go into production. He said something along to the, like something to those effects. And, you know, James Gunn had a great, like, kind of uh, anecdotal story about, or just like, just like a, a way of kind of like encompassing what's going on, where he's like, I'm really good friends with Edgar Wright. I'm really good friends with Marvel. You want, you see these two people that you love and these two people that you have so much in common and they have so much in common and they're in a relationship and you like it and you want to make sure that that relationship is strong and like you're so happy for them. And you think that just because you like them both individually that they belong together when actually maybe it's not going to work out completely and you can still like them individually if they break up. And he's kind of talking about it in those terms. And then Joss Whedon has like the other version where he's just kind of like, you know, you either play by the rules or you don't. These guys are big dogs. Uh, There's a lot of money riding on this. 
and they have they have a track record. That's at the end of the day, they haven't messed it up. Mm-hmm. And an auteur is supposed to listen to producers to a certain effect. Uh, and I think Edgar Wright is just isn't interested in being in a producer director relationship like that. And he didn't know that that's what Marvel was going to be, which is why he hasn't really gotten attached to anything else either. You know, like he went from this to. He just went to Baby Driver, essentially, where he couldn't get a movie made for quite a bit because nobody really wanted to work with him mm-hmm. because they read all this Marvel stuff as he was difficult when even Kevin Feige was like, no, no, it's just this isn't what we wanted to do. And yeah, I think it's uh, I think it was a good call for everybody involved. And Edgar Wright, I think this would have jettisoned his career into awesomeness much in the same way that it did with James Gunn and Taika Waititi like these are known name known directors now and Edgar Wright is uh well known but not to the effect that James Gunn and Taika Waititi are now in like the public circles you know not like the nerd circles we all know Edgar Wright has been around longer than James Gunn and Taika Waititi but now it's everybody knows like oh that's the Thor Ragnarok guy you say Edgar Wright they'd be like what did he do and it's like oh he did like Shaun of the Dead, and they'd be like, oh, I remember that movie from, like, 20 years ago. It's like, oh, shit, it has been, like, pretty long since, like, his most well-known movie. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting, too, that this movie fell through, um, and he wanted Ant-Man to be a comic book heist film, uh, a heist comedy, and then this not going the way that he had initially planned kind of almost worked to his favor as well just because then he went on to make baby driver which is more dramatic it's not necessarily a comedy there are comic elements in it for sure but he went on to make the heist movie that he'd always wanted to and so if he would have made two heist films in a row i feel like maybe baby driver would have lacked what it has now So, I mean, he could have definitely used elements of what he ended up using in Ant-Man. And then maybe once you watched Baby Driver, you could have, this is all conjecture, obviously, but you could have watched it and said like, oh, this is a little repetitive. But the fact that he didn't get to direct Ant-Man allowed you to watch Baby Driver with fresh eyes. So Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of an interesting take as well. Yeah, I'm I'm of the mind and... You know, this entire episode is pretty much based off of conjecture on our part because, uh, you know, beyond just like it did not happen. And most people have said it is because of this. Uh, Everything pretty much you have to kind of lead to believe. Uh, I, I, you know, writing a a script five times uh, would suck. Yes. And then after putting all of that work in for like eight years... Uh, would, and then having them just, like, completely kind of rewrite things, uh, would suck. And, like, Joe Cornish dropped out immediately. He was like, yeah. I don't want anything to do with this anymore. Mm-hmm. Edgar Wright tried to stick it out. And he was just like, this isn't, uh, I'm out of love with this project. I'm not the right person for this. You guys right. want to do this. I don't. Take what you will, and I'm gonna move on. And, you know, obviously, whoever pulled that pass... Uh, that script was pr- uh, pretty much like abandoned. The The sixth new script was technically abandoned because then Adam McKay and Paul Rudd came in and did a rewrite. Mm-hmm. After, once Joe Cornish and Edgar Wright had completely left and now they were just going to be story screenplay credit and uh, Wright was going to get a executive producer credit. Um, I believe, conjecture. Conjecture. Theoretical. I believe because Paul Rudd and Adam McKay are such insanely good friends with Edgar Wright before this entire project, I do believe that what they did was is they acted as the middle ground between Edgar Wright and Marvel unofficially. I think that Paul Rudd and Adam McKay communicated with Edgar Wright what they were doing, what Marvel wanted, and how they were going to fix it, and that they were running it by him. Not for okays and stuff like that, but getting his input and there's re- and I think that's why there's certain scenes that Wright was not a part of that are that feel very Wright-ish. You know, the entire um the entire like all the like how you heard about the 
the the the different jobs and stuff like that yeah. from Michael Pena. Yeah, that was never in any of the scripts, but it shot like an Edgar Wright kind of bit. Um, you know, there's all of the stuff where it's like Hope Van Dyne's character was given more of a character and more of an arc within this movie, even though technically there really isn't one. Uh, which is kind of like. You can see that they're obviously building towards something else in the sequel, which is what they ended up doing as well. Mm-hmm. But in learning all of that, that like her character was like uh, really brought up a lot in like the new version, I'm kind of like, oh, it, that's probably something that Adam McKay and Paul Rudd did once Evangeline Lilly had like completely signed on. Mm-hmm. And I just don't know um, how much of that is new because there's really not a whole lot going on because I can't imagine what that character could do that could be any less than this. It's not right. that she's it's like not a large It's role. not that she's exactly. It's uh you know, she's like probably third build rightfully and she's in a lot of scenes, but there's not a whole lot going on. She's really there as, you know, the daughter standing character for uh Michael Douglas is Hank Pym to kind of mirror Paul Rudd's relationship with his daughter. Well, in my research, and, yeah. uh, the inclusion of Cassie, Ant-Man's daughter, Scott Lang's daughter, that happened after Edgar Wright had left the project as well. Mm-hmm. So I'd imagine the inclusion of his daughter helped pump up the Hope character. Yeah. Certainly. Yes. Which I think, um, I love Edgar Wright dearly, but we talked earlier and – I said, I think Spaced is my favorite project of his. And I think that's because of Jessica Stevenson, who was an active female role in that production, whereas all of the other Edgar Wright films are extremely male-driven, and really none of them have a strong female character, really. Mm-hmm. And so I can imagine him leaving opened up the door. Not that he actively keeps women suppressed. I don't think that's his design at all i think he just focuses more on the male aspect of storytelling yeah and so having edgar wright leave and then other voices come in granted it might have all been pre-planning for you know like ant-man and the wasp and to have cassie Mm -hmm. be more of a central figure if she were to take on the helm at some point yeah, it's so, all Marvel planning. Exactly. Stuff. Yeah, they're like, hey, Hope Van Dyne needs uh, to be a big actress because she's going to be bigger in a sequel. Case Cassie from the comics becomes something. Let's hire a young actor. You need to get the Falcon in there because uh, you know we need to connect that because that's what happens at the in Civil War. And right. uh, you know, one of my big things that I'm fa- fairly certain, fairly pretty certain from listening to uh, Edgar Wright interviews from before the split and talking about things that he liked about different characters is I, it looks to me that his Ant-Man characters, Hank Pym and Scott Lang were going to be a little bit darker than what Marvel would really want. Uh, which makes sense to me. Hank Pym is a bad guy in the comics. He is a bad dude and there's shades of it here. And if you hire Michael Douglas to play a character, usually he's playing a character that is a pretty bad dude. Um, Michael Douglas, 80% of his roles are like gray area guys. Right. And I think that maybe they wanted to try and stray away from that. And same with Scott Lang being like a full on criminal. They wanted to be like, you know, like that's a thing. The Ant-Man movie, the finished product that we got, there's a couple things, like big things that don't really work with me. They're not deal breakers because I'm not an asshole. Because like it doesn't really affect the overall mood and story it's just more shit that doesn't make sense like the biggest like i'll drop one right here the biggest one is people put on suits really fucking fast in this movie oh yeah in that jail cell when the ants start counting down down. 10 9 and all of a sudden he has the suit on what and that's got nothing that's got nothing on yellow jacket putting on the suit in a flying helicopter in like three seconds Mm -hmm. it's like that's just like all right I'm going to look over it, but come on. what? what it's like a little thing, but it's also not, you know? The helicopter scene is my least favorite scene of the film. And it's mm-hmm. also because it has um, Ant-Man talking to uh, Yellow Jacket when Yellow Jacket's big and Ant-Man's small. And it's this like, is... 
and you're supposed to believe that he can hear him and understand this is him. Another, this is another one of the big ones. And it's before like. he has the suit on. So yes. it's like there's no technology transporting yes. his voice to that character. But they're talking mm-hmm. to each other. It makes no sense. Yes. I mean, in the comics, it's never alluded to in the movie. So it's all just like, maybe. Sure. But in the comics, like his, his mask allows him to talk to... Um, Allows him to talk to ants, but it also amplifies his voice Mm. when he's smaller. But they never mention that in this. They never say that that's what's going on. So they say that it helps him connect to ants, but it doesn't say anything like that. So Right. um, um, And then the the other big one really is that Scott Lang is... uh, uh, His uh, thiefness is all fucking over the place. They're like, (laughs) he's in prison because he's a thief. And then he's like... I'm not a thief. I'm a burglar because I did this. And it's like, wait, did you do other stuff before that? They never say if he did other stuff before that, they say he went to prison because of this. And I'm like, well, if he was a burglar, why was he working this? Was that him trying to clean up? Yeah. But then he burgled anyway, but they didn't say that he burgled, but then he can like acrobat around and knows how to do all this other stuff. And I'm like, wait, where did that come in to being like an electrician for this company that you ended up like screwing over? Yeah, it seems like his his burgling, he, he that's like his moral term to make himself feel better about it because there was no violence involved. Sure. So, so yes, he burgled. He was more of like a cyber hacker than anything. But then how can he like spin and move and break into places well, and didn't you see that montage where he trains with hope for like three days and all of a sudden he no. knows how to do all of this no before that when he breaks into uh Hank's oh, house i feel like he's he... able to like bop 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 no he yeah he glides he Don't does some shit he looks kind of whole... dumb some of the time no 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 hold on a second <laughs> you here. think he looks skilled and trained a... There is a specific reaction shot from Michael Pena and T.I. that is like, oh, wow, he's really good at this. He may not actually look that good to us as like an audience because it looks kind of weird. Sure. And we're like, oh, I didn't know he could do this. But apparently in the story, in the in the movie, it's like, oh, look at that. He can like do all that stuff. And I'm like, where did he learn how to do that? Yeah, maybe he learned in prison, I, I guess. Maybe. Because it seems like, that's- I don't know. I'd like to, you know, because Scott Lang, I'd like to, you know, real dickhead douchebag at the beginning. And then he becomes uh, like, I like, I want morally gray characters that become less gray as the movie goes on and they become a hero. And I think that that's not what, um, that's not what Marvel wanted. They wanted the heroes to be a little bit more heroic. And likable. Yeah. They didn't want them to be anti-heroes and stuff. And so I'm just, there's that stuff. And then there's. Like that's the character stuff is the stuff that I find the hardest to like get over with the movie. Again, it doesn't ruin the movie because the movie's such a fun time. Mm-hmm. But like the Darren Cross stuff is another thing where it's like, like he's a weirdo, but also if he wears the suits, uh, it messes with his brain and he becomes bad. But he never fucking puts on the suit. What are you fucking talking about, movie? <laughs> I know where. What is this movie talking about <laughs> with that shit? I don't. I'm like, he doesn't put the suit on until the end, but you're saying that he doesn't need to put the suit on anyway because he's already kind of messed up. But then you're saying the reason that he's doing this is because he's been putting on the suit, but we've never been seeing him putting on the suit. Who cut the wrong scenes out of this movie? I know. I wish uh, that scene where Hope tells him, like, it's the technology messing with your brain. That mm-hmm. could have been so easily explained by instead of saying technology, saying like, oh, your like exposure to the pim particle research that you've been doing yes. has been like infecting you slowly over yes. time. So easy to change that Which, line. Yeah, I think that's what they're going for, but they keep saying suit. Yes. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's never put it on. Yeah, as I far as we know. Exactly. It's like there's things that they're not showing us. Uh, to kind of just change some things. And, you know, I love the idea of, I wish that he was much more, and I think there's seeds of it there, but there's just moments. And I think it's just, uh, you know, the actor's approach to the character and Evangeline Lily's like reaction to him and the deceptive nature of like the chemistry these three characters have. 
I would have loved it if Darren Cross was actually kind of a sympathetic character who who was like, Hank Pym was my father figure. Like, I never had a dad. Like, he walked away from me and blah, 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 and all this stuff. And, you know, I lost my mom when I was young. And Hank Pym was there to pick me up. And all I ever wanted to do was prove myself to him. And that, like, he was a little bit too assertive and aggressive. Like, there's that, like, the Spider-Man thing where Willem Dafoe's uh, Norman Osborn is just a little too aggressive normal. And then the serum just jacks that up and makes him insane. Like, I would have loved, like, if there was a hint of a character that we really liked in Darren Cross, who we wanted to see succeed and, and bridge this gap between him and Hank Pym as father and son, and to that effect, him and Hope as possibly, like, romantic, uh, like a romantic relationship. Like, you're kind of almost rooting for that a little bit even though maybe hope isn't interested which makes you kind of not like him because you're like oh he's not picking up the cues here which becomes a little bit more aggressive and a little bit more evil as he's being exposed these things that's an interesting arc for the villain that we just do not get in this instead we just get i'm an evil guy who likes to blow up sheep right yeah his character arc is yeah it's like zero to zero like, there's no transformation. Mm. He is literally just a placeholder for the yellow jacket suit, which is yep. very disappointing. And I do think it's because, as you mentioned earlier, that they didn't allow Hank to be a villain either. And yeah, yeah it at the very beginning, you are told this is the good guy when you have his yeah. interference with uh, Stark and with Agent Carter. And you see that yeah. dynamic. And they tell Straight you Straight off the, the bat, beginning. an example of why Wright would leave. Because yes. he's just like, because he wanted to do something with young Hank Pym, yeah. obviously. But it's just like, all right, and get, get Agent Carter in there. And get, <laughs> and get Stark's dad in there. <laughs> yeah. Like, you can tell that he's just like, guys, like, I want this to be a little bit of a standalone. And he probably just didn't want to meet him halfway. And they weren't interested either. So, I and like I said before we started recording, I was really thinking that I was going to dive into this and maybe shake some more concrete stuff out. But it really just kind of does simply come down to that, that they write puts it the best way. I wanted to make a Marvel movie, but Marvel didn't want to make an Edgar Wright movie. And that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that opening scene with the younger versions of these characters in 1989, I know Edgar Wright wanted to do something in the 60s. And have Hank on like a James Bond-esque mission, Mm -hmm. which would have been very, very cool. And I think would have set up the film to do much more interesting things. Mm -hmm. But And I I think that's like Marvel just sees the opportunities. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're doing Scott Lang. Scott Lang's daughter in the comics is a superhero. Put her in there. Or like, oh, you're going back into the 60s. Oh, well, we already saw all these characters from the 40s, so why don't we put them in there? Because we're, I mean, that's Marvel's big thing is where they're trying to fill in the gap between what we saw in the 40s with Captain America and when everything starts in like 2008. And they've been doing that in Iron Man 3, Iron Man 2. They like just messing around with the 90s Captain Marvel. They're filling in the gaps and you know, these little tiny flashbacks and everything. And they're trying to create, like there was this whole shield organized world that happened in these 50 year gaps. And like, that's where like Fantastic Four is most likely going to land. And that's where all of these different things were going on. So as soon as they see that, they just go, ooh, we can start planting the seeds and stuff like that. And you can tell that that was probably just something that Edgar Wright as an individualistic auteur filmmaker with a vision of a script that he'd been working on for eight years just didn't really want to aggressively change it too much right yeah definitely that really makes sense that you brought up guardians earlier with uh james gunn getting to be a little bit more of an auteur because it makes so much more sense to do somewhat standalone films when they don't take place on earth because you're not shackled to the other events that are taking a place on earth in the mcu Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's the thing that with Taika Waititi as well with Thor, they get a little bit more wiggle room. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a, I, the, the guy, the guy that makes movies that are so aggressively individualistic to his style, um, as Edgar Wright does, 
you know, it's, yeah, it makes sense that maybe it wouldn't jive well with like a big studio overhead, like just trying to oversee things, which, you know, should be trusted as well, just because they have a track record and maybe they're a little bit more trustworthy now. And maybe Marvel, um, you know, in doing Guardians 2 and doing Thor Ragnarok and realizing that they can let these auteurs, like even Ryan Coogler with Black Panther, mm-hmm. that they can let these auteurs really kind of work within the system and lighten up a little bit. Maybe they regret uh, not working with Wright a little bit more closely and maybe Wright regrets dropping out. Who knows? Um, yeah. But I would say that it is, you know, Peyton Reed did a real good job yeah. with what it is, which is surprising because, I mean, I don't know if you know the, again, all conjecture, but I think it's kind of no bullshit. Like, they offered this job to everybody after Edgar Wright left. Oh, and did nobody. They? Nobody would take it because they don't want to stab Edgar Wright in the back. Oh, I see. Adam, Adam McKay was offered the gig and he was like, absolutely not. I won't do that. Yeah. Uh, I think Judd Apatow was in the conversation at some oh, point. Weird. And he was like, no, I won't do that. <laughs> the big one was uh, David Wayne. I did see that. Was, yeah. Was offered the gig and he's like, I'm not going to do that to Edgar Wright. And right. so they finally found Peyton Reed, who was just like a big comic, comic book guy who had mm-hmm. never had a chance to make his comic book. Uh, and his big dream was to always make a Fantastic Four movie. That's what I also read, yeah. Yep. And he's got like that he's got that great take on Fantastic Four that I agree with where it's like it should be set back in, you know, the sixties and stuff like that and do all of that fun stuff. So Yeah, for sure. They got him to do this. Ant Man is probably the closest to like that kind of technology and kind of scientist kind of thing that Fantastic Four has. So they brought him on in, and it worked out. He ended up doing Ant-Man and the Wasp as well, which is also a very good, like, fun, entertaining film. Yeah, yeah, I had a fun time with it. It's the same thing as Ant-Man, where it's like, I feel like, I just feel like, um, to be blunt, shit doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, Uh, there's a little bit of stagnation, for sure. Yeah, where I'm just kind of like, all right, I mean, fine, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, Peyton Reed, a uh, fun little factoid that I just read about today that anyone can find on Wikipedia, but mm. he was in a punk band in his earlier years, and okay. he had drawn up like a flyer for his band, and all of his band members were like Marvel characters, and he drew himself as Ant-Man. Well, so well, there we go. he definitely had a lot of love in his heart for the Ant-Man character. But yeah, after mm-hmm. directing things like Bring It On and The Breakup, you would have never imagined that director would come into the MCU. But yeah, I agree. I think he did a very good job. And I think he influenced the film in a way which made a lot of sense. Right. I mean, it's very much, it's it, it feels the closest thing that I can think of is, um, the big one is like, you get John Favreau to make your Iron Man movie. You know, it was just like also weird. That guy, the swingers dude, you get him to do it, and then it's just like, oh, that really fucking worked. And kind of to an extent, the same can be said with like Kenneth Branagh doing Thor. It's like I guess I kind of see the connective tissue there, but like the big like lightning action movie, you want the Shakespeare guy and the Frankenstein guy to do that? Okay. <laughs> well, out of any of the MCU stories, Thor makes sense for a Shakespearean drama. Out of any, yeah. Out of any, but, of like them. it's. It's like out of all the uh, the the aspects of the Thor mythology and character, the kind of Shakespearean aspects are the one that you really anchored the director down to. Yeah, it's odd, uh, but he uh, Peyton Reed pulled it off. Yeah, he did a very good job, and yeah, Adam McKay is great, and as you said, Paul Rudd assisting with probably the help of Edgar Wright definitely helped keep some of that flavor in the film. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. But yeah, I I haven't watched, uh, well, I hadn't watched Ant-Man or Ant-Man and the Wasp since theaters. So oh. rewatching it this morning uh, definitely took me back. And I will say, I think the first time I saw Ant-Man in theaters, I enjoyed it more then than I enjoyed it on this rewatch. Yeah. And I don't know if it was just doing the research ahead of time and kind of knowing more of the story of the production going into it. But yeah, I definitely liked it but liked it less than my initial enjoyment yeah ant-man is uh i think i've said it before on the podcast somewhere ant-man 
is the only Marvel movie I have not I did not see in theaters. Mm. And that's because, uh, like, uh, summer 2015 was a very wacky time for me. And I was insanely busy uh, and had a bunch going on. So it's just one of those ones that I had to literally wait for it to just come out on Blu-ray and then watch it at my house and be like, and just like, you know, that's months removed from, like, all the hype and when everything came out. So I was always much more lukewarm on it than anything else. I'm also a big Age of Ultron fan, where I think that's one of the best movies in the MCU, which is a stark opposite uh, opinion of most people. Um, and actually, that's you know, one that I still have not seen, is Age of Ultron. It's great. It's so good. Yeah. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah, because I've heard that Edgar Wright was reaching out to Joss Whedon and begging him to change the creation of Ultron from yep. Hank Pym to... Uh, Stark and who else was involved? Banner. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and that's one of those things where it's just like, Joss Whedon is a very good writer, and the the remake of Ultron's origins uh, makes so much more sense for the MCU, for these characters, and for the themes that he's trying to talk about in Age of Ultron. I think Age of Ultron is probably the most... With the exception of Black Panther, probably, because Black Panther is worlds apart thematically from most of the other Marvel movies, uh, Age of Ultron is the one that has the most on its mind. Interesting. Is the thing, it's the one that's talking about, yeah, like the, the movie is, the every aspect of the two and a half hour plus movie is kind of discussing um, what it means to be human what a legacy is, what it means to have, like, what our fathers have done to us and how the sins of the father are carried over but also repeated so that it can carry over once again. And there's also other things going on. There's a lot going on in the movie. Uh, some of it does not work um, because some of it is just not as interesting as some of the very extremely interesting things. And I think that's where the uh, the perfection line starts to get blurred and that's where people can start being like well the movie's not good because it's because that part's not perfect oh. and it's like well I mean that's not really what it is and obviously you can't say that because nothing's perfect and that's not a good opinion so then you pretty much just start saying well the whole movie has problems and it's like well I mean I wouldn't agree with that I think much of the movie don't get me wrong the movie has problems. Okay. But most of the movie, the things that are obviously the things that Joss Whedon was the most interested in are not the problems. It's it's where Marvel was like, so you need to, we like your story, but you also need to include these five characters. Um, these three things need to happen and um, you need to end like this. And he was like, you got it. And then the movie ended up being three and a half hours long. And they're like, you need to cut an hour out of this. And he's like, I cannot cut an hour out of my movie. I'm Joss Whedon. The story is the entire thing. The script is the thing that ties everything together. We should make it two movies. Mm. And they're like, we're not going to do that. And so that's why the movie suffers the most is that it's a Joss Whedon script that is all about connectivity and building things up and payoffs and locking things in and it paying more and more off. So it pays out like a motherfucking like cash machine at the, like an ATM at the end and there's just some things that are dropped because we weren't given enough time to settle in oh uh, because they cut over 45 minutes of the movie yeah that sounds um, extremely unfortunate and so this is the and the reason that I'm going into so such you know in depth with it is that it is ironic that this is sandwiched right next to Ant-Man and the beginning of phase three because Age of Ultron is most likely what would have happened if Edgar Wright and Marvel had moved forward with the project working together. Um, it would have been the exact same thing that happened with Joss Whedon, where the only reason Joss Whedon kept going is because he was contractually signed in to do one more. He was the one that was spearheading all of this stuff. He was the one that was touching up all of the scripts throughout Phase 2, which is why Phase 2 is the best one. That's why all of those movies kick ass with the exception of Thor The Dark World, which I really just need to give another chance. We'll see. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's probably what would have ended up happening 
should Edgar Wright and Marvel kept going, I think that they would have started like kind of hitting these things where Marvel would need Wright to do this, this, and that, and he either wouldn't be able to do it well or he wouldn't want to do it at all. And that, again, kind of like Kevin Feige, Kevin Feige and Wright said at the beginning of all this, like better to just cut the cord right now than to go into production and just have it be a mess. Right, yeah. I mean, better for all of their mental health as well, because there's nothing worse than creating a project that you really thought was going to go one way, and then having it ripped away from you. And even if you're complicit in the act of it happening, seeing that final product up on the screen, I'm sure would feel like a letdown, Mm -hmm. because you knew that your heart wasn't fully in it the whole time. So, I mean, yeah, good for them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is a weird one, definitely, to talk about, because I've seen a good, I don't know, maybe 10 movies out of the MCU. Maybe a little bit more. And how many are there total? Uh, Like 21? 22? 21, 22, Okay. I've seen, like, about half. Maybe a little over half, then. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't um, fully understand what Ant-Man was doing. I, I understand the phases, for sure. Um, I get mm-hmm. it that this one definitely got sidelined to a certain degree, which is what Edgar Wright really didn't want to happen. I know that he mm-hmm. had said that he wanted Ant-Man to have his own story and not just be a supplement to the other stories happening, which yes. kind of is what happened in the long run. Although uh, the inclusion mm-hmm. of like the, quant- the quantum realm and uh, all of that stuff was a very, very significant factor in Endgame. Mm-hmm. Probably the most enjoyable aspects of Endgame were because mm-hmm. of Ant-Man's inclusion. So I guess it kind of worked itself out in the wash at the end of it. But definitely Ant-Man and Ant-Man and the Wasp kind of do feel like lesser recognized uh, MCU films. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, you know, not to knock right, but I do think that that is exactly what Marvel promised as well. They were like, your movie gets to be smaller So it can be more individualistic. You can put more into it. But you must put these three things in there because the connective strings must be there. Sure. We don't want you to Age of Ultron it where everything needs to be tied together and doing all of this stuff. We need these like three or four strings that are slightly tied off. Find ways to work them in. It's what James Gunn did. Yeah. It's what Taika Waititi did. And Edgar Wright was just uninterested in it. And they got Peyton Reed to do it. And it turned out great. It set things up properly, it connected properly, and those movies are allowed to be their own thing, which is what Wright wanted it to do as well. And it's the whole thing that Peyton Reed trusted Marvel to be able to pull it off, and Edgar Wright didn't, and that's kind of the end of it. I don't knock it, I don't hold it against Wright. If he doesn't want, if he's not comfortable working like that, then then he shouldn't work like that, and kudos to them for understanding that and being mature enough to be able to walk away from it. But I do think that um, at the end of the day, Marvel was trying to give Wright exactly what he wanted, um, but he just wanted he wanted it just a little differently, and they weren't going to be able to budge on that, which they also have the right to do as well. They're the ones spending all of this money on it. They're, at the end of the day, they're paying Edgar Wright to do a job, and if they have a few notes, they're more than entitled for that because it's their money, and if he doesn't want to do it, he's more than entitled to walk away. Sure. It's kind of just as simple as that. And I really thought that I was going to find some juicy, juicy gossip, but that's really just all it is. It's just like, it's just not going to work. It's not a good relationship to have to to yield uh, the proper product. So let's cut the cord. And here we are. Yeah, it's pretty cut and dry. But we did get Baby Driver, which we're going to talk about next, which I'm really excited about. Yeah, definitely. And also... I know that he had left the Ant-Man project for a while to help complete um, The World's End, which -hmm. I think The World's End is better for it because of that. I know um, that one of the producers, I believe, for The World's End ended up getting cancer. Mm -hmm. And so Edgar Wright had to step in a little bit more uh, towards the end of that um, post-production phase. Mm -hmm. So I do think The World's End probably is better off because of that as well, How unfor- however unfortunate the circumstances were. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I think uh, things work out the way they're supposed to work out most of the time. So I agree with you they there. Work out, they work out the, the only way they ever will. That's true. The only universe we get to live in. 
So uh, what about Ant-Man do you really like? Since we've kind of just been hashing out the theoreticals and uh, the process of how it was made. What do you like about Ant-Man? What are your favorite bits? Uh, Bobby Cannavale. Yeah. He's great. He's very charming in this film. He's a very, char- he's a very charming little boy. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael Pena uh, deserved the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor <laughs> that year, and I'm not joking at all. I, I think that would have been great. He's great in this film. Yeah, he's great. He's fantastic. When he's just smiling, mm-hmm. it's great. Um, I also really love... Uh, it's so funny. I'd never noticed it before, but I noticed it watching it for this. Uh, at the end, when Michael Douglas's Hank Pym has been explained that the quantum realm was kind of inaccessible and maybe maybe all is lost. Mm-hmm. He, he takes a look over at a picture. And it's a picture that's uh, that was taken, uh, that was printed, and that was chosen to be framed, uh, given all of the context around it. And it is a picture of uh, himself younger with his wife and their baby, uh, the baby being Hope. Mm-hmm. And um, they had not cast the actress yet, so in the picture, you can't see his wife's face. Uh, it's covered by a big hat. Uh-huh. Uh, it's one of the dumbest fucking things I've ever seen in a movie. It's like, why would you have a picture of that? You can't see her face. Yeah, why would you keep it? Like, why would you hold she's on to the it? Most, she's the most important part of that picture <laughs> because she's dead. Pick one that... What the hell? It's just like, it is. it is a very... There's parts of the movie that seem very funny that I think were just kind of done on purpose where they're like, just go with this. We, the, oh, there is there is a daytime DJ trance club in the apartment below them. That is very yes. strange. And I, it's so strange. You're just like, you have to go with it. Mm-hmm. Why would he put on that suit in the middle of the day in the bathroom? Mm-hmm. You just have to go with it. It's you those do. things are so strange. You just need to go with it. Um, that picture is fucking lunacy. It's and very silly. Whoever the art department, like they should be locked up, and they should be, they should go to jail. <laughs> yeah, it's they should go to prison. It's weird because there is an actress who's billed as that character in the mm. credits, and yes. uh. Forget her name, but she was cast because she has Michelle Pfeiffer like eyes. Like they already kind of like had an idea that they wanted Michelle Pfeiffer for that role as the mother. Sure. Makes sense. So they cast like someone in the role to do like the very short scene that we see of the wasp acting. So it's like, well, if you already had an actress and you already had another actress in mind, why didn't you have a picture that made more sense? Just have her in the picture. And then if you need to, like, retcon that, then you can retcon that, whatever. Have the yeah. same picture in Ant-Man and the Wasp, and it's just Michelle Pfeiffer aged down. And people won't even think anything of it. But I agree, like, you needed to see a face in that photo. It's very silly. That's the point of photos. Yes. Why would you hold on to that specific photo and highlight it in your film? Frame it, yeah. And, <laughs> For and, no and apparent like, pay reason. attention to it. Just have, like, a picture of her, like, next to that one, and the corner of the frame of the one that we're looking at in the foreground is kind of covering it so you can't see her face. I don't know. Put some effort into it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That part is very silly. But the DJ thing, I'm going to completely let slide. That's fine. Oh, well, I think that's uh, maybe sometimes why there's a disconnect for me with the MCU films. And why, even though the DC films, which are sometimes a straight-up dumpster fire, I think yes. uh, DC sometimes lands more with me because they embrace that camp comic book world that they live in. Okay. Where I think, maybe more specifically with, like, Birds of Prey. Like in, oh, yes. That, in something that like makes that, sense. it's like, well, they're kind of embracing that they live in this weird campy world where... Mm-hmm there's a nightclub on the street and like it's pure daylight outside but like you can go into the club and it seems like it's nighttime like Mm -hmm. movies like that help embrace it not dc movies as a whole but i'm currently watching doom patrol on hbo max and again like that show is batshit crazy Mm -hmm. and if mcu were to maybe embrace a little bit more of like 
how fantastic this world is. They tr- Sometimes they try to ground it in reality too much. And then once you have like a trans club in daylight happening mm-hmm. below Scott Lang's apartment, you're just like, what? <laughs> like, this is so stupid. Yeah. Because my my feeling is that, like, Birds of Prey is the first time that DC, it's the first really good DC movie mm-hmm. because they they have uh, started to, and, they, like, this is kind of, like, the big DC problem is that they've started to replicate Marvel stuff because my, my take on it is that DC has always been the reality grounded one. Oh, yeah. And that's why it doesn't work. They try to be like, well, what if Superman existed in the real world? Mm. He would like, there would be religion started about him and he would be angsty. Whereas the Marvel movies are kind of like, how would this fantastical character affect the real world? And how would the real world change Around based on Iron Man like being present? Because like, when we start in Iron Man, the world is, for all intents and purposes... 2007 very normal our reality yeah. yeah and then slowly they start changing technology gets updated now they've started going back and retconning and kind of creating the comic book world that has always been a slightly more fantastical mirror of our own and the mcu is their whole thing is like their big thing is like no secret identities really they try they try to avoid those because in reality you would never be able to keep that a secret no. in this new world they don't work you, you, so that's kind of one of those things. And so like with 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 Ant-Man, it was Marvel movies are always a little goofy, a little funny, like that that's their quadrants that they're trying to hit where they have equal parts drama, action, uh comedy, family-friendly stuff and connectivity and all these things. So like it's episodic so you can't miss it. And uh Ant-Man was kind of the thing where they're like, "Oh, they hired a a comedy director, Edgar Wright, uh, and they hired a movie star who is primarily a comic actor, Paul Rudd, and they're using Ant-Man, who is kind of like a punchline, so, oh, this one must be funnier. And it's like, no, like, it's it's a little bit more lighthearted, mm-hmm. and everyone's like, oh, it's a good palate cleanser, a small story after, like, the big story of Age of Ultron. Where I'm just kind of like, Age of Ultron isn't all that serious either, boys. Like, it's it's dealing with, like, pretty, like, heavy themes. But, like, sincerity of themes does not equal seriousness. Like, no. it's about a robot that can go into a bunch of other robots and wants to try and destroy the world to start over. Uh, and he has daddy issues. That's the, that, that's it. It's a robot with daddy issues who wants to destroy the planet. That's not that serious. No, and fairly campy, all things considered. Exactly. And that's why the Joss Whedon movies work the best. And that's why Phase 2 works the best is because they they do that sincerity stuff, but they add that kind of lighthearted campiness to it. Like Winter Soldier, they're just like, oh, we're going to do all of this. But also, it's a cool 70s espionage thriller to the point that we can get away with that. And, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy... We're going to do that, but we're going to inject so much like Spielberg, Zemeckis, Joe Dante-isms into it that it's going to feel so fresh and exciting because it's from like a really twisted dude who's like going to try and get away with as much weird shit as he can. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. I I do think you're right with uh, them thinking like, oh, we got to like punch this one up and make it funnier. And this one has to be known as the funny film. Because sure. you have uh, that Baskin Robbins boss at the very beginning, who's the actor yeah. who performs as Neil Hamburger. Yeah, Greg Turkey. Yeah, who's ridiculous. And then I was trying to look up briefly, but I am blanking on this actor's name. The the guy who is the customer in Baskin Robbins. He's a very funny comedic actor. He has a funny turn. Oh, really? In You're the Worst. Oh, nice. He's like a small recurring character. And then in Ant-Man and the Wasp, you have Tim Heidecker, who gets that great, like, brief cameo. So, yeah, they're, like, mm-hmm. reaching to try to be the funnier one. Yes. But in, like, a world where funny isn't taken seriously. So there is, like, mm-hmm. a little bit of a disconnect there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
<sighs> well, I, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you too. I haven't seen this film, and I believe you have, since you're a Spielberg boy. Did Spielberg boy? Did you see uh, the Adventures of Tintin? Oh yes. Okay. How did you like that? Because that was also written by Edgar Wright and Joe Cornish. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a fantastic movie. It's one of the. It, it's. I wish it was live action. Yeah. Um, but the thi- a lot of the things that make it really interesting and cool wouldn't have been able to be done if it was live action. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great. I love it. It's uh, one of my favorite like recent Spielbergs. Joe Cornish is a very very good writer, and so is Edgar Wright. Yes, like Joe he Cornish's is. Attack the Block is one of my favorite uh, movies of the of the past like twenty years. It's great. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think Stephen Moffat was the third writer for that film. Mm-hmm. Also, like you can have your issues with Stephen Moffat all you'd like, but he is a very good writer and he tells very interesting stories. And then I think Simon Pegg and Nick Frost also did voiceovers or voice acting work, right? For Tintin? Yes. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, they were very much involved in like that kind of thing because like that's around the time where, you know, Peter Jackson and Spielberg were kind of trying to lift up like Wright and Cornish and even Circus. Yes. Uh, and try and like create this trilogy that like Spielberg directs one, Jackson directs two, Circus directs three. They're all involved as uh, producers and creative consultants and that Cornish and Moffat and Wright would be writing them all. Interesting. So that you have, you know, you have these British credentials, but you also have these kind of fun, plucky attitudes that you're going to put together with two of the best directors working right now in Jackson and Spielberg, and then also Circus, who Jackson and Spielberg at the time were trying to supplant as like the next big um, masterful director. And it just kind of hasn't landed yet. Yeah. Interesting. I didn't know that Circus was kind of on that trajectory to direct. I had Mm -hmm. no clue about that. That would be, be very cool. He's very well seasoned. He's been in the business for a long time. Yes, yeah, and he, he did direct uh, that one movie a couple years ago that I did not get a chance to see yet, but that actually just reminds me that I should probably check that out and see what it's all about. Interesting. My bad, Andy Serkis, for not knowing that you directed a film. Yeah, he's, he's a good guy. Would The Adventures of Tintin garnish enough material for discussion since we discussed Ant-Man with Edgar Wright mm-hmm. being a writing credit on that and also on Tintin? Would it warrant a discussion or... Did we kind of cover the bases now? I do an episode on it. Yeah. Mhm. Cuz we're kind of nearing the end, we're slowing down a little bit. So uh mm-hmm. we're looking for more material to talk about, I suppose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I do an episode on Tintin. I'm doing my I'm trying to catch up on my series on uh writing about Spielberg, Movie Daddy, uh and Tintin. I already got my copy cuz that was one of the earlier ones that I wanted to do. So I'll just push that up to the front and I can Write my article on that and also uh, do a little do a little chat with you. Yeah, we could if that you'd like. Good. Yeah. No pressure either way. No. But can we do Baby Driver next? Yeah, absolutely. I'm ready for Baby Driver. <laughs> I want it. I'm, I've been waiting so... So patiently. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so ready to watch that movie and start talking about that again. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited too. I'm excited to give it kind of a second shot since I wasn't the hottest on it when I saw mm-hmm. it the first time. So yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, I got to reread too. my article from when it first came out to see how hot I was on it back then. I think you were pretty hot. Oh, I was very <laughs> hot. Oh, I love that movie very much. I think it's a very good movie. Mm-hmm. All right. Well then, um, is there anything else you'd like to plug? Well, I have I you mean, here. No, this is, this is the exclusive guy. So thank you guys so much. Like we said at the top uh, for supporting us. Uh, we got some pretty cool stuff coming uh, your way as members that we were all discussing the other day. We're we're doing a lot to try and up the uh, coolness of StoryScreenBeacon.com and all that is involved, be it reviews, articles, podcasts, and videos. And uh, we're going to be doing some fun stuff for the peop- local people in the area for like the drive-in and all that. So it's going to be fun. Keep Please keep reading, keep supporting, interact with us, share us with people, get the word out. Um, and keep having fun with us. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. I know I mentioned earlier to keep up with us on all of our social media, but I didn't go over handles or tags. So if you are on Instagram and you aren't following us yet, you can go at un- at story underscore screen underscore beacon. On Twitter, we're at story underscore screen. 
And then on Facebook, it's a very easy story screen beacon, New York. You can find all of our information on films that we're screening at the drive-in and then eventually again at the theater once the theater proper opens up. And yeah, just stay tuned for all the exciting details we have coming up soon, especially on articles and podcasts. But yeah, I think that's all the good stuff, right? All the right good that's, stuff. That's all the right good stuff. Next time, Baby Driver! Yeah, I'm so man. so excited. I'm so excited. All right, well, thank you for joining me, Burge. This has been a pleasure. Oh, it's fun. Let's keep it going. Yeah, and we'll catch you listeners later. Bye. Peace. Peace.